Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist. And I'm Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist with the First Steps Program in Louisville, Kentucky. How are you tonight, Ms. Laura? I'm great. How about you? I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, we were just chatting before the show came on about our weekend events. Yeah. And everything. So it does sound like you've had a good weekend. Lots of company and entertaining in that new beautiful house. That's right. It was very nice. I'm glad I don't well, do it I every say, weekend, but it was very nice. <laughs> well, when I went this week, and I don't even think we've talked about that. I just left you a long chatty message about it and took my daughter with me because she had not seen it at all. She was so excited to see it, and thank you for letting us go. We did, we had a really good time. Oh, I didn't even know you went. I never heard your message. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think you did because one, you have we haven't talked about it, and I think we have talked since then. And two, I went on and on and on and on in the message, and Macy was screaming in the background stuff to tell you, and then it finally said something like, "You have ten more seconds," and we both cracked up laughing. And I didn't do what it said we were supposed to do after, so I didn't I didn't know if it left it or not. But I'll have to give you the lowdown after the show. Okay, yeah, I didn't know some, you went. I thought you just didn't go because I didn't hear from. You and I thought, oh well, they didn't make it. No, Funny. it was beautiful. We had so much fun. We had so much well, fun. But good. Again, I'm glad let's to make that it. for after the show. Okay. We should have an after the show show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or not. That would be really good. Or not. Yeah, nobody would yeah. want to hear that. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Announcements for tonight. First of all, I'm so excited about my conference in West Virginia on Thursday, September 15th. People are already registering for that, and the mailers have barely gone out, so yay. Uh, And I would just love to see a room full of smiling faces that day. So if you've not gotten a mailer and need information about that, or I sent out a bunch of emails about that today, too, uh, please check the website at teachmetotalk.com and get registered for that so you don't miss it. Lots of our events actually sell out, so I would hate for you to wait till the last minute and then not be able to come, which has happened to a few people. And Johnny is always saying, you cannot let them come. The fire marshals have rules about how many people can be in a room. Quit saying yes. So um, please sign up if you want to do that. And I'm so excited, too, to announce that we are going to do an event in Dallas. I think it's October 19th, but it's the week of October 17th, and then um, earlier in the week, like Tuesday or Wednesday or so, Dallas, and then we'll be in Shreveport, Louisiana, on that Friday, and Kate, you'll remember how fondly I talk about my Shreveport dates, or my Louisiana dates that I've done, so I'm so excited I'll be in northern Louisiana, and hopefully we'll have as much fun as I had when I did uh, New Orleans and Baton Rouge last December, so I'm really, really excited about that as well. So check out the website. Those dates should be finalized this week, and we'll get those uh, events going too. Uh, other announcements on the Facebook page this week for TeachMeToTalk.com, I put a link to a, a blog that I like so much by Mom. 
And she has an idea. She does lots of creative things, and she has an idea that she does with her toddlers with using different objects for a song bag, and so they get to reach in and pick the object and sing the song that's affiliated with that. And I thought that was just a really cute idea idea for a mom to do or a therapist. And remember a long time ago when we worked in southern Indiana, Kate and our friend had that little music program that she did? Yes. And she did some things like that. I think she used pictures, but I think real objects would be even better. And I sing all of the time in therapy. If we're playing with a farm set, I'll sing that little, um, you know, the cow on the farm says, moo, 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 that little song, or Old MacDonald Had a Farm, or I'll break into a theme-related song just with whatever toy we're playing with. But I've not really put it together in a song bag, and I think that's a, a cute idea to have objects that would represent certain songs, especially for those kids who really light up and love to sing. So I, I'm going to be looking at organizing that. And there's a, a link on the page about um, she has some different songs, some songs that we don't know because she's actually from, I think she's from um, United Kingdom. So there's one song called The Big Hairy Spider. Do you know that song? Oh, no. As opposed to it, the Bitsy Spider, it sounds good though. <laughs> it like sounds good. Theme. I wonder if it is the same. And we just sing the Itsy Bitsy Spider instead of the Big Hairy Spider. But I might need to YouTube that, see if I can find someone singing that because I thought that was an interesting song title. And I think we have lots of little boys on our caseload who would, who would like the Big like, Hairy Spider. Yeah. So that link is on there, so check that out on TeachMeToTalk.com's Facebook page. There's also a really cute picture of my friend Kelly's baby on there playing in her pots and pans, and she posted it on her private page this week or her friend page, and I asked her if I could put it on TeachMeToTalk.com's page because it's a good reminder for parents to let your child be with you as you do your work or whatever you're doing about throughout your house rather than gating them in a separate section and I just I get so darn frustrated with those baby gates I think we've taken safety to a whole new level where kids are isolated not spending as much time with their moms and dads as they used to in generations past, and so I loved it when she posted a picture of her baby climbing in the bottom drawer of her stove, of her oven, you know, where you keep the pots and pans down there below, and he has he has climbed in there with a huge smile on his face, and it just reminded me of how much we need to let babies be with us when we're in the kitchen and when we're doing our, our work throughout our home. So check that cute little boy out and think about that. And that's something as therapists that we need to be talking with moms about, about how to include language as a part of their daily routines. And, you know, that's really called incidental teaching. When we just, whatever comes up, that's when we teach the word. Whatever, you know, if the child is, if if your language delayed child is not understanding very many verbs, you know, you can target that in the kitchen. You can stir, you can pour, you can bang, whatever rather than um, always coming up with really structured ways that we teach things during therapy, but for for moms just when it comes up in daily activities. So I just thought it was a cute little picture and thought it was a nice way to remind us of things we need to talk about with our parents. It does seem like so many more families or, I mean, maybe it's just I have a lot more um, contact with many more families, but 
in my day, my kids were with me everywhere I went, including the bathroom. And nowadays, it does seem like there are so many kids who they really stay in the family room, in the little kid corral, and that's where they really are pretty much all day. And I agree with you. My kids, no matter what cool, fun, awesome new toy I bought them, really what they like the best are those things like pots and pans that, you know, you just let them play with because that's where you are. And it doesn't seem to happen um, the way it used to as much. I'm sure it happens some, but I don't think it's quite as common. And maybe it is in the interest of safety. I don't know what the impetus for that would be, but... I think that's it. It's been with safety. And while I appreciate that and understand that, at the same time, I think our kids are missing out on so many real-life learning opportunities. Um, And even about safety, I mean, you have to teach a kid at some point, don't touch the stove. (laughs) And without being in the kitchen, you can't really teach that lesson. So I just thought it was a cute picture and a Again, a cute way to remind us that our kids need to be with us. And this is especially true for our kids who are so socially disconnected. I mean, those kids are really happy to just do their own thing all day long without bothering mom or um, even, you know, they're pretty content just to do their own thing, which mostly is roam and do sometimes do a whole lot of nothing. And sometimes mom's kind of like that passiveness because, again, they're not bothered with a persistent one- or two-year-old who wants to be the center of everything you do, but that really is is how typically developing toddlers are. My babies would not have stayed um, in a gate, or you laugh all the time about trying to put your kids in the playpen and how they were trying to jump over the clear the side. I mean, they, in two children, yeah. I think I used a playpen for a grand total of about 15 minutes. All it was was a place to throw the toys because they absolutely, and Laura, maybe as much as it is about safety, maybe it's also a reflection of the fact that we see kids who oftentimes um, socially are somewhat if not completely disconnected, at least not typically developing socially, and they don't demand it because, you know, I tried the playpen when my kids were toddlers or babies, and even as babies, you know, the minute I'd stick them in there, it was though I'd done something horrible and they started to cry and throw fit, and I thought, well, that's not going to work, and I took them out. And these kids that we see, a lot of times they are content to be corralled in a room or stuck in the playpen and and so maybe it's both. Parents are more yeah. concerned about safety, and we see a population that is more um, agreeable to those terms. And even if they're agreeable, it's not necessarily a great place for them to spend too much time. So Exactly. They need yeah. to be with you so that you can talk with them and interact with them and not leave them to their own devices. Because, again, I think a lot of times a whole lot of nothing is going on. <laughs> with those toddlers, and and it takes sometimes an objective person to come in and say, well, he may be, you may think he's quote-unquote playing by himself, but he's not really even doing that. And so that's a perfect segue into our topic tonight with discussing the stages of play. And, again, we talked about this um, part of this material on a show in October of 2009 Mm-hmm. And a listener, I know it's so funny, a listener asked me what show that was, and, you know, I could just find the general time. I didn't, I 
confess I did not go back and look for the specific show because I thought, let's revisit this information. And instead of just talking about that, I'm going to start out by talking about even a precursor to that. And this information is from my therapy manual that was just published in May, Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual that really highlights all of the receptive and expressive language milestones that children should reach by the time that they're four. And the beginning chapters, though, to back way up and talk about all those prerequisite steps that have to occur before a child is even ready to learn language, there's a whole chapter there on cognition. And I think that so many times we think about these cognitive milestones and we know these cognitive milestones even as parents, but we don't link those to language, or we don't really fully appreciate the importance of meeting those cognitive milestones. And sometimes therapists, even though they know it, their educational experiences or the person that they had that taught them this stuff didn't do a good job of saying, hey, ladies, you're, a kid on your caseload has to do these things before he's ready to talk and really make that as big of a, hey, pay attention to this, this is important, as it should be. And I certainly, you know, again, I'm not, it could have happened in my educational career, and I just don't really remember it. But I want to be sure that uh, that those of us who work every day with babies and toddlers are really paying attention to these cognitive milestones because these are things that have to occur in a child's development before we know that he or she is developmentally ready to learn to understand words and then use words. So if you have kids on your caseload who aren't playing yet and you think, oh, my goodness, they're not interested in toys, what's going on here? What am I going to do? A lot of times they don't know how to play. They've not met these basic cognitive milestones. So when you back way up and look at these things that should be happening you know, in typical development, it happens in children between six to nine or six to nine months and nine to twelve months. We need to be looking at children, even if they're on our caseloads primarily for language, to make sure that they've met the cognitive prerequisites. Because if they haven't, you are just wasting time when you are trying to teach them to do things that they are not yet ready to learn because they haven't established that foundation. And Kate, you were so kind last week when we were ending the show and I was talking about this upcoming topic to say that you had taken a look at the manual. I think you were on your trip to California. You read it on the plane. I did. And this is something... Yeah, and this is something we talk about. I mean, we've talked about this ad nauseum almost for, let's see, how long has the podcast been? Three years now. But we've <laughs> never even really <laughs> made this strong of a connection so that when you were looking at it, you were like, oh, my gosh, that's right. That's, yeah. This is what, what needs to happen. Yeah. And, again, we talk about it all the time without really, I guess we've just never – never boiled it down to this level. And so I was so excited to get to put this in the therapy manual, and I've gotten good feedback from therapists, and especially those therapists that I just think, bless their hearts, they're 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 not so seasoned that they're not embarrassed to admit, oh, my goodness, I didn't know that, or I didn't realize that, or I'm just starting out, and guess what? I, I'm so glad I read this in your book because I had never thought to even look for that. And I just think when somebody tells me that, I just want to squeeze them because I think, oh, that is so sweet for you to admit that because so many professionals don't. And you and I tell each other 
about everything and pretty much say more on the show than everybody would even want to know about us <laughs> as far as admitting, I didn't know that. Or I, I didn't know, know that. that. I, really, yeah. I really blew it when I did this. Boy, did I screw this up. But it's it's the kind of information that I think a lot of times you know it, but you just don't realize that you knew it. Or you know it, but you're not applying it. You know, and I'm, again, I'm talking about those of us who've worked for a whole lot of years. I've screwed this up with kids. I've started playing with things that they weren't ready to play with yet, and then I'm thinking, why is he just throwing that toy? Why is he only mouthing that? Why is he trying to flip the back over to look at the screws? Why is he doing this? Because he he can't do anything else yet. He hasn't met those cognitive prerequisites. He doesn't know how to play with that toy yet because cognitively he's way back at that sometimes not even the six to nine month level. And so we have to back so far up and really use the information that we're seeing when a kid tries to play to gain insight and to look at his cognitive development because, frankly, that's all we have with a kid who's nonverbal is looking at how he behaves and how he, more appropriately, how he plays with toys to see if he's mastered these basic cognitive concepts. So as you can tell, I'm pretty fired up and excited to talk about this. <laughs> well, and I think it's something that I, on some level, knew. I think it's something um, that can be difficult sometimes to to educate parents about and right. do it in a way that, that they're convinced. I think parents, you know, they hear simple things like, well, that's how babies learn is through play, but they don't really a lot of times recognized, but if they're not playing in certain ways and with certain things and in certain fashion, they're really not ready to talk. Um, right. That, that can oftentimes be a revelation because they think, well, he just doesn't really like toys. or he, Right. You know. <laughs> yeah, they assign it to a personality trait mm-hmm, mm-hmm. rather than a cognitive deficit. And right. again, you don't necessarily have to hit a parent over the head with those words with, well, the reason he's not doing it is because he's not smart enough to do it yet. You don't have to really say it in that way, but as a therapist, you surely better be thinking it in that way because if not, you really could spin your wheels for a long, long, long time doing the wrong kinds of things and presenting materials that aren't appropriate, working on goals that he's not ready for because it, you know you, you've skipped several developmental levels in there and the kid isn't ready to move forward. And sometimes... I think this happens. The therapist will work on a goal for four or five or six months, and then finally the kid gets it, and they think it's that four or five or six months of hard work that the kid got it, and really it's just maturation. He's finally caught up to your goal. (laughs) So now he's finally ready for that. And if you had maybe, and we don't always know this, but if you had worked on the skills that he was missing first, maybe you could have moved that along a little faster. So I think it's just important information to highlight. And, again, it's something that I think all of us know because of our educational backgrounds, but we don't always do a good enough job at starting at this basic level um, when we're looking at how a kid plays. Or as speech-language pathologists, you know, we're, we're depending on somebody else maybe to evaluate a kid's cognition or, you know, reading somebody else's report, normal cognition. And so you kind of think, there you go, he's ready to talk without really seeing 
how that looks. And I know with your experience, Kate, you actually look at those cognitive milestones, right? You're actually looking at this kind of stuff through your assessments. Yes, definitely. But oftentimes I'm kind of playing speech therapist and sometimes I get, you know, I, I'm guilty of the same thing. Let's go straight to talking. Um, I certainly start with the playing and kind of meet them where they are and see where we can go from there. But, yes, my assessment tool does certainly look at how their play is developing. Right, and these are the kinds of things. We're going to talk about the three big cognitive milestones that I think a kid has to meet. We're going to talk about how to look for those things um, and sort of how to target those things. But if you really want a more in-depth review of how to make sure that you're covering all your bases with that. This information is from Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual, and we're running a free shipping coupon right now on um, a little free shipping sale on the website, so you can check that out and then not have to pay shipping. Be sure that you're entering the code free shipping and just spell it all out during the Google checkout process so that you can take advantage of that sale. But it's all from the therapy manual. It's from Chapter 7, and the three big cognitive milestones that we're looking at in a child would be that a child has mastered object permanence. And, Kate, I'm going to put you on the spot. When does your test say that you a kid needs to master object permanence? Oh, no. I, I should have warned you. I don't know. that I'm going to go with 12 months. Well, and I think that's the outer limit. I mean, I really do, because don't you remember your you're typically developing babies and other children that you've had the fortune to get to play with. They're they're doing peekaboo and playing. You know, if the if the yeah, pacifier but, is under the but blanket. But you know, our assessment tools are pretty generous on those ages. I think it might be nine to exactly. twelve. Yeah, yeah. And they are generous, and we've talked about this before because assessment tools use as their age limit 90 when 90 percent of typically developing children or 90 percent of children have mastered a skill so that would mean if you have 100 children they're not going to say or put it on our test with the age range until all but 10 of those kids can do it so you know and again that's a really layman's way to explain the whole standardization process but at the same time a lot of times we get so confused on those milestones and think that's when an average baby does it and when I think about average baby I think about the 50th percentile right in the middle and the norms that we use on our tests and on our milestones are way past that that 50th percentile baby probably did it for weeks or months before it would show up on a test so when a kid is missing milestones you know when the doctor does the well baby checks and ask mom can the baby do this and the mom is feeling like well he only missed four out of ten of those things that's not that bad is it you know I think somebody should jump out from behind the door and say yes that's horrible because <laughs> most babies have already done this even the slower babies can already do it and again not to make the mom feel badly about what her child can and can't do but just to get her attention or just to shake a parent out of complacency or sometimes even with a therapist you think well it's not that big of a deal if he's just sort of oh he's missed about half of these things but he's he's developing and I just want to shake people and say do you not understand how we use milestones this is even when the slow kids have already done it you know he and again not to be 
using terminology to be um, condescending or in any way negative, just to be really, really realistic. When if you're missing a milestone on test, it's kind of a big, well, not kind of, it is a big deal because that is the very bottom baseline age when a kid should have mastered that skill. And so to say that these things that we're going to talk about should be mastered by 12 months, again, like you've said, is pretty darn generous. Mm -hmm. If if your kid is not doing this by the time that he's blowing out the candle on the first birthday cake, and rarely can babies do that by one, but if the first birthday is rolled around and he's not met these cognitive milestones, that's the point that you start to get worried about development. Not at 12 months when he's still not saying anything, and for lots of kids on our caseload, when they're not even doing what? You said 12 months. Did you mean 12 months? 12 more months at 24, at that second birthday, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so a lot of times, you know, parents aren't pursuing help for kids until they're 20. Which is nine times out of ten the way it plays out. A very high percentage of our referrals Mm -hmm. come in in somewhere around 24 months because for whatever reason – Talking is so, it's so, I guess it's the most obvious thing, and you can't attribute the lack of play to so many other things. Oh, it's personality, he's just not interested in that, no, 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 but talking is pretty concrete. They're either doing it or they're not, and parents certainly want to hear mama and dada and bye-bye and ball and all those early words, and when they're not, that's much harder somehow to deny than he really right. doesn't put the box into the container. He really doesn't right. use the hammer to pound the pegs. He really, he just doesn't like that, you know. And, right. Uh, okay. I think you're right. It's easy. It's not as easy to explain away mm-hmm. as some of these other things might be. So the three big milestones that we're going to talk about are object permanence, and just for the sake of review, that means knowing something is still in existence even when you can't see it. So object permanence is one cause and effect, meaning that I can do an action that will make another action occur. I am the cause that generates the effect on this toy or on this object in my daily environment. And lastly, simple problem solving. And usually these three things go together. I mean, rarely will you have a kid Usually it's kind of all or nothing. Sometimes you might think it's submerging, but I think about these three things going together. And just think about kids on your caseload, Kate, when you have kids that are really lower functioning that we on our test would be below the 12-month level. It's they're struggling with all three of these. It's not usually that they've done one and they need some help getting over the over the hurdle with the others. These three things really go together, don't you think? Right. Yes. They either kind of have them or they don't. Yeah. Yeah, and there are kids that you can see it's kind of emerging in. Um, and for therapists who are really thinking about children on your caseloads, again, these are your kids who aren't talking, who aren't really playing yet. These are the kids that you kind of scratch your head and think, what the heck am I going to do for this visit this week because he can't do very much of anything yet. These might be kids that, have motor challenges for whatever reason. Now, sometimes with those kinds of kids with motor challenges, their parents really understand that they have motor issues. And I'm talking about our friends with cerebral palsy or our friends who 
um, may have had an injury or a stroke or anything that would cause parts of their little bodies not to work. And so sometimes their parents really can see those physical issues, and so they know, well, he can't use his hands or he can't use his legs or he can only use one side of his body, and they get that. But then they attribute or they think that a child might have just completely normal cognition without appreciating that lots of times motor skills really drive cognition. Or, you know, and then I'll think, no, wait, it's cognition that drives the motor skills. You know, is it that he's so interested in what's the toy on the other side of the room that it propels him to crawl to want to do it? Or is it that he can crawl and because he can crawl he wants to explore? I mean, I could, that's how my mind works. I can sit and think about that <laughs> think about that. What came first, the chicken or the egg? And my but simplification re- of that is it big motor or little motor? You know my motor thing. <laughs> <laughs> I tend and to think of big motor more than little yeah. motor. <laughs> and you mean the cognitive development, don't you? Right. Talk about that a little bit. I know, I'm, again, I'm putting you on the spot a little Here bit. Here we go that's... again. Well, you know, in our line of work, and I think probably the um, occupational therapists do the most talking about motor planning, and um, when a child doesn't play, typically they might say, well, I think he has motor planning issues. Um, and though that may well be the case, I tend to think, mm-hmm. And my sister, who was, used to be a developmental interventionist, um, said many years ago, I think it's the big motor. And, you know, this was one of our casual chats, not podcast chats, so I better be careful. But um, what she meant was I don't think he gets it. I don't think he understands right. it, and that's why he's, it's not that he couldn't do it physically. It's that he doesn't really right. get the payoff. He doesn't really, he has no incentive to try because right. he doesn't understand it, whether it be a simple cause and effect toy or, um, you know, whatever. They just have no interest because they don't really understand that they can manipulate it and there's something fun that happens at the end of whatever it is they have to do to be successful. Um, so, you know, we would kind of tease about that because – go ahead. Well, I was just going to say it's a great analogy, and it always does bring it back to home with they have to have the cognitive maturity, development, understanding, you know, competence, whatever word you want to stick in there. They have to understand you know that A leads to B, or or again, if my if my sippy cup has disappeared under my blanket, voila, I can move the blanket and it's still there. You know they have to get that first, and so so many times again, kids won't be doing these kinds of things in play, but we move on from there and address things that are higher level without really covering our foundation. And it is, I mean, there are so many kids, too, that I was talking about before the kids with motor challenges who may not be demonstrating these cognitive things. And so many times parents and even some therapists think, well, it's because motor-wise he can't do it yet, and so he understands these things. He just can't show me these things. Sometimes that's true, but very, very often with children that we see in early intervention, it's that they don't have the cognitive understanding either. And so with these kids, when we try to think, okay, he can't really sign yet because he can't move his body so very well, but he could probably push this button 
And so we'll give them something like a Big Mac switch or some other, or we'll say we're going to use pictures with this kid, and then we figure out, oh, my goodness, all he's doing with that picture is eating it. All he's trying to do with that picture is flip it over and rip it up or whatever because he doesn't understand the symbolism for the picture. He's not there yet cognitively. Or with a kid that we want to use an augmentative device like a Big Mac switch or some other computer voice-generating device where we want the kid to push the button, and then the kid pushes the button 25 times in a row with no regard for what comes next, he hasn't mastered cause and effect because he doesn't know or appreciate the whole um, reward for that. And used to say with this darling little girl that we used to see a long time ago who was diagnosed, um, you know, and had a big diagnosis, but you would always say, when we were working on cause and effect with her, she gets the cause, but she has no idea what the effect is. And that is such an accurate description for some of our kids. Almost no awareness. It was like, and don't you still see those kids where whatever it is happens that's supposed to happen, and it's like they didn't even notice it? You know, meanwhile we're saying, look, look, oh, oh, and they don't even, you know, it's like right past them, didn't even register. Yeah, and sometimes it looks like, okay, he's just so hyper-focused on the lever to push the button. And with the racetrack toy, this happens a lot, or with the ball toy. They'll know to push the button. They get the whole, okay, I'm going to put my finger right here and push it. But they're still at that level and have it move beyond that cognitively to see the thing that's supposed to happen with that racetrack toy that I use that with all the time. I love it because there's a sound and it's the of the car and then the cars come out virtually under where the lever is. And so a kid, when I have a kid that doesn't even notice that the cars have come out, I think, oh boy, we've got a big cognitive problem. And no way, no how is he ready to start assigning meaning to words and understand words, much less talk because cognitively he's still well below where we know children begin to understand and use language. And so that's that's a distinction that we have to make as therapists. And, again, that's a hard conversation to have with parents sometimes. But if you start with, okay, we have to work on cause and effect. We have to work on object permanence. We have to work on simple problem solving because until he masters these things, he's not developmentally ready to talk yet. And I think when you say it in that way, then it really puts the importance on laying the foundation and establishing those skills first rather than the therapist isn't going to come in here with flashcards and teach him how to talk or use a device or use whatever. And sometimes other therapists on our teams, physical therapists, even occupational therapists may not get that link. They may not get, okay, he can't talk yet because cognitively he's not there yet. And so sometimes we're going to be the people that have to even educate other professionals. And so it's really, really important that we understand how to talk about that, how to how to assess that, and then how to work on that. Because, again, until a kid is there, don't even think about that he's going to be ready to sign or use words because, again, he's he's just not ready yet. You know, we would never expect a six-month-old baby to talk, would we? No, he's not developmentally ready. And so that's where our kids are when they're, when they're at that level. And so I think it's just really, really important to be able to talk about that. 
Good to know about that. And there's some great ideas in the therapy manual to help you work on that. Certainly, we all kind of know with with measuring object permanence, when he's playing with something, hide it and see if he can find it. Sometimes you have to really almost let it be sticking out a little bit. I'm always shocked when I hide something in a child's shirt and they have no idea that I've done that. They don't even look down like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just like it disappeared. And I think, oh, boy. We've got a long way here because he should be looking for that just because he can feel it. Surely he feels it right there in his shirt. And so with those kinds of kids, I really get concerned. And so, you know, that's just kind of a practical way to work on and measure and teach object permanence. Certainly that happens in our social games as well with peekaboo and with with toys with jack-in-the-boxes. You know, sometimes you hide the... I always love that little pizza clown from Discovery Toys that they don't even make anymore, but sometimes you'll put the clown back in the box and the kid isn't even interested in the toy anymore because, and especially if they don't have cause and effect yet, they're not sure even that they should push the button to make it reappear. So, again, use what you're seeing in play as a way to let you know what's going on cognitively with the kid, and ultimately that lets you know whether he's ready to talk or not. Cause and effect, there are tons of cause and effect toys on the market. We've talked about lots of those in the past several weeks. You know, I just mentioned the Peaks the Clown is one of my favorites. We talked about that little piggy bank last week or the week before, didn't we? The little, uh, uh, what's it called, Counting Fun Piggy, I think it is. Oh, I don't know the official name. It's the update of the Fisher-Price Pig. Yeah. Where you have to push the tail down and it comes out. It's a good one. Right. That's a good one. The other one that I mentioned is the Fisher-Price Spiral Racetrack. They have a newer one out now that is related to the Cars movie I saw it in Walmart yesterday. Uh Yeah, my racetrack has disappeared, so I'm going to have to get a new one of those. I know. I think it's at someone's house, and I've asked my clients, but no one has has come up with it yet, so we'll see. (laughs) Maybe you took it out when you were pumping gas. Maybe you left it at Thornton's. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's on the side of the road somewhere. Who knows? Yeah. But that's Let me say this so- on this cause and effect. Um, you know, not my favorite are those things that really are just like, not to knock a brand, but the tech type things. You push the button and it says, hey, or, you know, sing uh, the song. Yeah. Or um, because so many kids, they get so stuck on push the button, push the button, push the button. I prefer them to have fewer bells and whistles, if any. Yeah, no kidding. Mm-hmm, yeah. if any. Sometimes you can't even help but get something, but, you know, it's for them to have to do something manually, and then there's something that's pretty obvious that happens as a result. If there's kind of a surprise or a something kind of exciting that happens, that's going to get them better than something kind of low-key and, you know, not as obvious. Boring. But yeah. Boring, yeah. Yeah, so so take a look at what you're using to elicit cause and effect to make sure because sometimes it's just again that you've you're not using something that's novel enough to get them to notice it. Sometimes with some of those toys, like some of those ball toys, the effect is so far away from what the kid would do to activate it that our kids who are poor visual scanners, like we were talking about our little friend, she never noticed that the ball was flying up out of the other end of the toy sometimes because it was a good foot away. It's kind of a big toy. Mm-hmm. Remember that kid right. and that toy that I'm talking about? Yeah. Yes. And so 
if when you can have the cause and the effect closer together on a toy. And again, this is something that you might not think about earlier in your career, but now I'm I, I really think about those kinds of things when I'm picking out a cool toy and what will work and what kids will like. I love the ball and hammer toy that has the mirror in the back because I think sometimes those really visually um oriented kids for a nicer way to say it almost notice the ball because the mirror's there and it sort of again forces them to kind of watch that ball come on down whereas with another kind of toy they may not have done that or you know that the the opening is there so that they can watch the ball go down the different ramps the different levels and sometimes with those other toys, like the Discovery Toy Boat, that the balls come out, those come out pretty quickly. But sometimes you have a kid kind of get lost between when he pushes the ball in the hole and where the ball comes out. If you have a kid that hasn't mastered cause and effect or doesn't understand that he can make something happen with a toy, he doesn't even know to look at the hole where the ball's no. going to come out yet. And so you, like you can't the see toy. him going through it. It just goes right. in and then it comes out. Mm-hmm. And they kind of lose right. it in between. Yeah, and so you can kind of see that happen with kids sometimes. So you have to really look at what toys you're using to teach that and use that. And then um, simple problem solving in toddlers, boy, that happens all day long. You know, a kid drops, he drops the sippy cup, and then a kid who's not looking over the side of the high chair for the sippy cup or, over, you know, not looking when the sippy cup has fallen out, not really looking for it, you know, you need to think, oh, boy, <laughs> he doesn't get it yet. And really talk to moms about that and come up with some ways that you can work on those kinds of things in daily routines. And, again, there's a really nice chapter about that in the book if you need some help coming up with ways to work on that. Okay, that was the beginning part that I wanted to talk about, to make sure that we are looking at play from that most foundational level. Sometimes we have kids who you think should be beyond that, and again, because you're fooled by the number of candles on the birthday cake or by what mom or dad have told you that they can or can't do or make assumptions about it, sometimes even kids who look older who are just playing with toys in very perseverative ways, like you gave a great example, Kate, they're just fixated on pushing A, 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 A on the VTEC toy, Sometimes it's that they haven't mastered these cognitive things and nobody's really put that together yet. And so sometimes play looks really, really delayed, again, because of their cognition, and you have to go back and really teach the how to, how to or use this kind of play to facilitate that cognitive development so that you can get further down the pike. And it's not that motor-wise they can't do it, just cognitively, as you would say, Kate, the big motor, <laughs> hasn't been activated so that they, and sometimes it's just experiences, and, and and kids look like they're playing with things really perseveratively, and mom just might say, well, all he wants to do is really kind of look at his fingers or watch the ceiling fan or whatever, and it's because he doesn't know how to play yet. And so you back up and you, you work with toys that teach these things and that, that work on these skills and help him master these skills, and then he can move forward after that. Does that make sense? It does to me, but... I think parents don't sometimes appreciate how much work, quote-unquote, work it can take, how much repetition, how much help a child needs to sometimes master it. And one of the things I find myself saying a lot day in and day out is when he gets it, he'll like it. You know what I mean? It's like he doesn't like it because he doesn't really understand it yet. And he doesn't really understand that he can do it. Even if he exactly. could, you know, motor planning-wise do it, 
because oftentimes they're doing things that are more challenging for motor plan purposes, but they're not doing the functional play because cognitively they don't get it. And how right. how many times have you worked and worked and worked to get a kid to put the balls in and push it in the hole and it comes out and then get the ball and put it back in? And in the beginning, you know, we're kind of forcing it. We're doing everything we can do to get them to stay with it and to get them to try it and to get them to do at least one to step. To watch of it, the, yeah. Yes, even be aware that the balls are going down and then coming out. And, you know, we're doing backflips to try and get them to attend to it. And when they get it, they love it. So They do it you know. over and over. And their moms say, oh, my gosh, I didn't even think he loved that. Yeah, he and loved that toy. And it's like, yeah, because now he gets that toy. He and, understands it, yeah. Right. And it is true that typically developing kids do not need practice with that. I mean, a kid at 12 right. months is going to pick up the ball, try and stick it in the hole, pound on it, see it come through, grab it, and put it back. But here and we are working 15, with... Sorry, yeah, about 13, 14, 15 months, they're taking the hammer to do it. You don't have to show them. They just understand it. They just right. know it instinctively. Yeah. Go ahead with what you were going to say oh, about I was say, you know, Sometimes assistant. we're working with kids who are considerably older than that, and sometimes the assumption maybe on the parent's part or on a different another therapist's part is, oh, he's beyond that. He, that's a baby toy. And the truth yeah. is sometimes, eh, he doesn't get it yet. Right, you know, with, right. It's still too hard. Yes. Yeah, it's still too hard for him. It's not that it's too simple. It's that it's too hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they don't because they look at it, again, like it's a baby toy. And, you know, it's a hard sell sometimes to kind of say, but you know what, developmentally, that's where he is, and we have to back way up and make sure he can do this stuff so that he's ready to move forward. And I tell, you know, now, I'll just say, developmentally, we have to meet him where he is. We have to meet him where he can be successful. He's not ready to do all these other things yet. He doesn't like these other toys because he doesn't understand how to play yet. And you do have to just kind of sometimes bite your lip and say it anyway <laughs> because mm-hmm. it is sometimes you're the first person who's telling a parent that, and they haven't really put that together yet. And that's heartbreaking. I mean, I... Had a, have had a visit in the last couple of weeks where I'm thinking about all the different things that I said like this, and I almost didn't want to look up at the mom because she had tears in her eyes, and I thought, oh, she's going to cry, I'm going to cry. Oh. But you have to say it. You have to say it. Because if you don't, they don't know, and they're just thinking all these other things are the reason that something's going wrong rather than cognitively he's not there yet. And so, again, it is kind of a hard thing to say. Okay. Now, let's get to the information that the person asked about. Okay. Which was, <laughs> can you hear, 45 minutes later as Johnny's laughing in the background. But these stages of play and what we had talked about on the previous show, these were the phases or how a kid kind of learns how to play. And the first one was with basic play that a kid learns to take apart and put things together. Uh, with items that are already fixed in an arrangement. So that would be like your inset puzzle and taking pieces out of the puzzle and then trying to get them back in. That would be like even like uh, something a little bit more advanced would be a potato head. Have you had kids before, Kate, that didn't really understand that they were supposed to put the pieces in the potato head? I have really started 
putting the pieces in the potato head for these really lower functioning kids and letting them pull the pieces out first Mm -hmm. before I try to get them to assemble it. Because you can just see on their faces, you know, they're trying to throw it like a ball or spin it or (laughs) putting their fingers in the hole, not really realizing, okay, we're going to put these little pieces here and they're going to all go together. So that might be a hint for another therapist working with a toy like that. Sometimes you have to start with it completely assembled before a kid gets what he's supposed to do with it. And then he's it's going to be easier if he can take it apart first rather than put it together first. And I think that that's an important lesson. That's why but even with something as simple as those little baby pop beads, sometimes kids don't get that those go together until they've seen you. You know, and I haven't played with those in a long time, but... You know, the little toys I'm talking about, Kate, the little pop beads. Yeah, and you have them put together, and then you start pulling them apart, and it's like, oh, yeah, I get it now. Now I can put it, I know that it goes back together because I've seen you pull it apart already. So sometimes that's a better place to start with that, with that kind of thing. Uh, The next phase would be put it in or put it on. I always think about typically developing babies here with container play. How many times could you just really occupy a kid who's about to turn, you know, 10 months, 11 months, 12 months with a big container of various things, you know, blocks, little cars, little animals, um, any kind of It didn't matter what kind of toy it was, but what do they want to do? They want to put it in that container and then dump it out and do it all again. So that would be the next level of play according to this reference is the whole put it in or um, put it on top of something. That would be like, too, I think, um, kind of an opening and closing if you have kids that kind of get um, stuck in that It's just, you know, put the, close the door of the toy and then open it again and close the toy, the door of the toy and open it again. They're still kind of at that put it in, put it on phase of play. And some of our little friends kind of get stuck there because they have those visual preferences and then they kind of like the way the door looks when it's opening and closing. They might also really like the pages when they flip really fast in the book. Again, they're stuck on that visual piece, but that's kind of what I've started thinking about with this kind of toy, okay, with or with this when I'm looking at their play, this is where they are play wise. Is right there kind of in that earliest foundation of playing. It still really fascinates them to do that really, really simple, simple stuff. This is a little additional thing. Sometimes those kids who have those Tendencies to do kind of visual stimmy kind of stuff, open the door, close the door, open the door, close the door. Sometimes they can really, and certainly not always, but I've certainly had kids that I've worked with who hung on to those behaviors long past. They were they were yeah. really way past it, but mm-hmm. they still would sometimes go there for whatever. Right whatever internal need it might be meeting, but they could be way past that, but yet still they get they revert back to it and they kind of get stuck there. They you know, do. And open. for some kids it's calming. It's yes. predictable. It's mm-hmm. the same thing over and over and over so they know what's going to happen. And, again, that might be regulating on some level. But, you know, our job as therapists is really to kind of push kids past 
past where they are developmentally, and certainly with with a kid like that, you don't want him to stay stuck there. Now, I've had kids who needed to do that sometimes to pull it together for 30 seconds, and then we kind of push on beyond that. But when a kid is stuck there, you know, that's perseverative, and that's not typical so if a mom is listening and thinking, oh, my kid likes to do that all the time, that that's a red flag for you. And so, you know, we just want to make it clear that even though we're saying some kids get stuck there, we're not meaning that that's necessarily a normal kind of thing. We we want them moving beyond that. Unless we're talking about a six-month-old, you know. But when, right. when we're talking 12-plus <laughs> months and that's the kind of thing you're seeing right. over and over and over and over, that's not typical and not right. a great way for them to spend their time. And usually, exactly. I mean, kids can be helped to move beyond that pretty mm-hmm. easily. Sometimes it, it's you bridging the gap between what they understand cognitively and, and what they're able to do and giving them the help that they need to get beyond right. that simple motor function of open, close, open, close, open, close. And like I said, once they get it, they like it. Most yeah. more often than not, and they're able to move on. And when mm-hmm. I have a kid that is kind of stuck there, if I can't get them to move past it, I try to introduce another step there. So if they're opening and closing a door, I try to put something in there. If there's a way for me to fit my whole body in what they're opening and closing at this door, <laughs> you better believe I have tried to squeeze myself in a cabinet or <laughs> under the table or wherever else for me to be the surprise on the other <laughs> end of that. And then you make it social. You always say, Kate, you want to make a TV toy where you're the you're in the TV. I'm in the TV. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, but add another part to that. If they're opening and closing a door on a toy, stick a ball in there, stick a train in there, stick something in there so that you're help, you're adding another component. That's a way to make it a little more cognitively challenging so that it's not just the repetitiveness of opening and closing whatever they're doing. Okay, the next phase is that a child would, it says at this play, at this step in play, the child uses an external object to take an action which is directed at him or her, such as putting on a hat, combing hair, or eating play food. And sometimes, again, you're not sure, is he just pretending he's going to eat that plastic food, or is he just mouthing that plastic food? you just got to model the whole and pretending like you're eating it. I always know that a kid really is at this level, at this pretend level, when we're playing baby dolls and they're pretending to drink from the cup and, you know, they're um, not uh, really expecting the milk to come out. You know, the kids that look really, really confused when they're like, okay, I lifted that cup up to my mouth, but there's nothing there. And it's so funny to me, the moms that will say, oh, we must be thirsty, let me go get a sippy cup. And I think, gosh, I don't want to put anything real in there. I want to really kind of work on this where we're pretending, you know, and again, pretending in the most basic foundational start of this whole cognitive processing way. Um, But I love it when I see a kid do that. And then when the kid tries to get me to drink out of the cup, too, or get his mommy to drink out of the cup, I think, gosh, we, you know, he has moved leaps and bounds cognitively today because he is really starting to quote unquote play and use those objects in the way that they're intended you know when you have the baby doll there and the kid picks up the brush and starts brushing his own hair that's 
what we're talking about, using an object in a way that it's supposed to be used, and again, kind of in the context of play there. But you have to start there. I mean, a kid wouldn't really, a kid might brush the baby's hair after you've modeled it, modeled it, modeled it, but you really do want to see them try to brush their own hair, too, at some point, so that, you know, again, that's the foundation for being able to move forward and know that eventually they're going to brush the baby doll's hair or the dog's hair or whatever you're using on that. So that would be pretending to do something with an object, and really it's using the object in the way that it was intended to be used, rather than, say, mouthing the brush. But that might not be a good example, because how many kids do you see, Kate, that try to use the hairbrush like a toothbrush? Ooh, a lot. And I'm always yeah. thinking, ooh, no, hair, hair. For your hair. Yeah. <laughs> a yeah. lot. Grabbing those little arms to put it back up on their hair, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, but baby dolls are a great way to work those things into play where you have your accessories there, you have the spoon and the bowl, and you have a bottle or a sippy cup, and you have the hairbrush, and you have a hat, you might have the blanket to cover them up to play night-night. You have, um, when they're little, beyond this early phase, I have Band-Aids in my I baby bag. Say, I always I, have Band-Aids. I can't yeah. play babies without having a few boo-boos. <laughs> exactly. Band-Aids are good. Lotion. I think you have powder, don't you, Kate? I use powder. Oh, yeah. Powder always makes my throat hurt, you know, all oh, my yeah. fragrance sensitivities. I can't use powder. powder I end up coughing. Say, That's not real, is it? I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I... I have lotion. I have my unscented lotion that I use, um, you know, so it doesn't get my allergies going. But I use real lotion there because that's kind of a fun thing to do with playing baby dolls. But I think baby dolls are a great way to do that. I, a few weeks ago, talked about my cheap little dog that I bought at Walgreens, it's which I got leash. by the way. That did and you, you have, know what? It's not ten dollars. It was seven dollars. I've had fun with that seven dollar dog. I told you. That's mm-hmm. a great toy, isn't it? It was a good one. Very well worth the $7 and available at any corner Walgreens. <laughs> I need to go get another one because I told you mine has started acting up. But Maybe that happened after the show where we talked about the dog. Well, you know what? But, you need to put it. Did you try a new battery? Because I went with the cheap battery that came in it, and then it was acting up, and I put a better battery in it, and it's back to working yeah. just fine. So. I have replaced the batteries already. I think uh, mine is just from a summer of love. It's had a played with it with and dragging it and letting it walk off the table and uh-huh. all the things that I have done with my little friends, just a less than ten dollar toy may not last more than a few months, but I got a lot of miles out of that dog. But again, when you put the accessories with it, that's what you have to have, one, to make it fun, and two, so that you can see some of these things that we're talking about and see what kind of where your kid is cognitively that you're working with, you know, your own child or a child that you're working with, so you can see what's happening. And if a kid is not ready for those things yet, what do you do? You model, model, model. You do use hand-over-hand assistance to help them do it. You make it as fun as possible. Um, I have brushed mommy's hair before when I'm, you know, playing with the kid and trying to get them to use objects like this so that we can start that early pretend. You know, I certainly have tried to get mom to drink from the sippy cup or the cup that we're using to play for. And then it's so funny when you see a kid light up like, I've never thought of that before. (laughs) 
know, so even modeling that in play and getting them to do it, that's that's pretty valuable. And the whole time you're doing this, you're talking with mom about why this is important and this is a this is we're building the foundations for language. You know, not only are we teaching him how to pretend here and how to start to pretend and how to use objects, you know, he has to be able to use these objects really or functionally, as the therapist would say, before he's going to really understand what they're for and, you know, for you to be able to ask a really advanced question like which one do we use to brush your hair or well before he's got to be able to use it well before he's able to say brush. So, again, this is establishing the foundation for all of that. The last, I tell you what, I think we're out of time, aren't we? Oh, we are. Yeah, so this is what I think we'll do. We'll pick up with this next week because I think it's, again, really, really important information for therapists who are working in early intervention. And I know at least one person is glad that we're reviewing these stages of play. And what you might want to do if you're a therapist and you've never thought about play in this way and in building play sequentially is, you know, Next week, get ready to take some notes and think, okay, what kinds of toys do I have that I can work on this with and where are the kids that I'm seeing this week as far as where do they fall on this play stuff? Do I have some kids that aren't great at this kind of stuff? How, what materials can I take in these next few weeks where we can really work on that? And then next week we'll pick up here and we'll talk about uh, some additional ideas and some additional toys that we've um, use this week in therapy, maybe some more create ways to work on these same skills. So I think we have a good plan for next week's show. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. Bye. Bye.